HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Emily Saladino, Editor-in-Chief of VinePair, a digital media company focused on inspiring content about all things drinks. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Emily about the year that was in wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails, what's in store for 2019, and we'll hear Emily's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the first episode of 2019 and the first episode of season four. We're excited to be back. As regular listeners know, we launch each show with an inspiration from Julia. Now, most people have their own assumptions about Julia and wine and Julia and drinking. Fair enough. Certainly got parodied. But perhaps to the point of distraction, what Julia drank on camera was little more than a concoction of gravy master mixed with water which she liked to call Chateau Gravy Mastor. Certainly off the clock, Julia did enjoy a glass of wine, generally paired with food. Professionally, she was an early advocate for the American wine industry and for Americans to appreciate the well-made wine she'd drunk in Europe, rather than the much well less, less well-crafted wine that was available in the U.S. upon her return in the 1960s. Keep in mind, this was well before the famed judgment of Paris, where California wines were judged on par with the French. It was Julia's enthusiasm for the pleasures of the vine that really helped spearhead public re-education about drinking high-quality wine, but also about the value of the craftsmanship and knowledge that go into producing it. She was a major advocate for the California wine industry, helped found the American Institute of Wine and Food, and she befriended many winemakers wine to spur them along. And yes, she definitely liked beer, 
And we could do, and we will do, a show about our husband Paul's famed cocktail recipes. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you may remember our guest in episode two was New York Times food writer Kim Severson, who gave us her perspective on what was a scandal-ridden food world in 2017 and what she thought to expect in 2018. So this year, we thought we'd change it up and focus on the world of drinks instead. Now, let's be honest, aside of the food world, we've been woefully neglecting since our conversation with Santa Barbara County winemaker Doug Mardrum way back in episode seven. Our guide today is Emily Saladino, editor-in-chief of VinePair, a digital media company devoted to all things drinks. Emily is a veteran food, drinks, culture, and travel writer, having previously written for Bloomberg, the BBC, and Travel and Leisure, among many others. A true culinary professional in the spirit of Julia, she's even been a line cook. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Looking forward to finding out all about the year that was and the year to come in drinks. So, but before we get into that kind of wild ride that was 2018, just tell us a little bit more about what VinePair is. Sure. VinePair is a digital magazine that covers beer, wine, and spirits through the lens drinking is culture. Um, and so what that means is we are less interested in consumption for consumption's sake. Um, we focus rather on the really interesting ways that what we drink intersect with our histories, our cultures, our, our socioeconomics. Um, a great example of a vine pair story that sort of embodies all of these themes is one that we ran in December of last year. Um, Alicia Kennedy is a very talented food writer who focuses on Puerto Rican cuisine, and she looked at coquitos. Um, for those who have not had the absolute pleasure, coquitos are a um, Latin American creamy beverage you drink around the holidays, the December holidays. Um, it's sort of akin to an eggnog. And in this article, um, the writer attends a coquito competition in the Bronx in New York, um, a neighborhood with a very historic Latin American population. And she uses this competition to look at the myriad ways the Bronx food scene is evolving, largely outside of the mainstream media gaze. Um, and this is a story I really love because it, it, it does two things, right? If you have grown up drinking coquitos, you are very excited to see a national publication examining and exploring um, their significance within different communities. If you've not, there's a different sort of discovery thing that happens there where you're learning um, not just about this beverage and not just about the Bronx, but kind of just the, the vast world that exists within culinary cultures. It reminds me, as you were kind of describing the type of article about the kind of things that, that Savor at least did, did do, but would you say that's a good comparison in terms of tone and scope, except that you're much more narrowly focused on the drink sphere? Yes, almost the the sever of the 2000s, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, like all of us, sever has undergone mere, many, many changes, right? It's a, it's a complex 21st century media landscape. Um, you know, I think the, the long form that Eater runs is, is quite similar to the long form that we run in the sense that it's global in scope. Um, you know, we're, we're all very interested in the meanings that what we eat and drink have. Um, those, are, those are parallels. I see. And how, so I think it's interesting. You, we I talked a little bit about your bio, but tell how did you find your way to ending up as the editor in chief of Vine Pair? What what was that the sort of short form of that path? 
I've worked a lot of really bizarre jobs in in food and media. I think are the two the two paths I've been kind of skirting my entire professional career. Um, I started out in book publishing. I worked in cookbooks, and in the meantime, I was bartending. Um, I've also I went to culinary school, and I worked as a line cook. Um, I wanted to be able to write and test recipes, um, and and also just get that real world um, experience. Um, I've worked in travel. I was a freelance writer for many years. And um, prior to VinePair, I, I worked at Google for about a year and a half on some food and beverage related products launching around Google Maps. Um, and I really love having that, you know, that sort of being able to combine a, a global perspective with food is, is really important to me. I think it's exciting. It's exciting to see how how wide the world is, how few stories um, have been have been told, sort of from a um, macro perspective. Um, and so from there, I I, I met with the co-founder of VinePair. Um, the VinePair origin story is really adorable. These two people had a wine club um, when they you know about five years ago in their East Village apartment, and they realized from there that. Um, a lot of millennial consumers for, <laughs> I hate to use the term millennial because I feel like it's so overwrought at this point, but a lot of millennials, you know, our, our peers um, didn't have the language to talk about wine, didn't feel comfortable using a lot of the terms that they'd heard, um, didn't feel there was a publication that necessarily spoke to them. Um, and so from this humble East Village wine club, came this idea for a publication targeted at a younger generation and um, that evolved into something that would not just be wine but also beer and spirits because I don't think too many folks drink just one anymore. I think we, we all tend to be um, you know, promiscuous in our tastes. We, we drink across categories depending on the circumstance. Um, so I had met with one of the co-founders by chance and then we, we ended up getting back in conversation um, when they were looking to hire, at the time, an executive editor. And um, I really, I like the mission. Um, I love the chance to get to work with drinks every day. And so, yeah, I guess I should emphasize for folks who haven't visited the site or maybe it's the first time hearing about it, that it's really, while you do have sort of best list and recommendations and things like that, it's really, you obviously come from the storytelling background and a lot of what is maybe even different than some other publications um, focused on wine, for example, without naming any, it, it's less about the ratings and more about the storytelling and experiences around them as much as recommendations. Is that exactly right? Yeah. So, so just so folks get that scene set. Um, I I know you've written about this, and so I'm curious to hear some of the highlights. We'll spend more time on 2019, but I always think it, it's good to you know, while we're still in January, look back at the year that was. And so I thought we'd we did it before with Kim Severson, sort of speed dating style, break it down category category by category, and hear what what for you sums up. So it could be it can be a highlight, it can be a low light, it can be a misstep, it can be a favorite. Um, so let's take them like one one group at a, a time. So what would you say sums up for you wine in 2018? Uh, well, I think something happened toward the end of 2018 that is bleeding into 2019. Um, there was a huge scandal in 
the sommelier certification field. Um, for those of you who've seen that Netflix documentary, Psalm, which I reference all the time despite personally having never seen it. Um, <laughs> but basically, it's what I hear is it's a documentary that demonstrates how extraordinarily difficult it is to acquire sommelier certification. Um, there was a scandal at the end of last year where uh, several folks were accused of cheating. Does this invalidate everyone's scores? Does this invalidate the institution? Um, it raised a lot of very big questions. And concurrent to that, I saw um, a, a kickback against the traditional tasting notes, um, a, a sort of ground up movement. Um, and by that, I mean, there is a lot of language in wine that's it's really borders on satire. Um, when you're in it, you're, you find yourself being like, what a well-structured glass, you know, and you, you find yourself saying this, but you take a step back and it it's all just sounds kind of bananas. Um, and so I, I've seen a, a groundswell that's moving against this. My colleague at Vine Pair, Tim McCurdy, who's ex extremely talented, wrote the story about how if you're talking about wine, you need to read the room. And I, I think he's, he's entirely right. Um, there's more and more consumers are questioning some institutions that have existed for a long time in, in our lives. And um, those two things together, right? There's a, <laughs> there's a common thread that connects them. And so I, I think at the end of 2018 and now going into to this new year, I see a movement towards democratizing wine language. Um, and so that can be anything from, you know, instead of saying it, it's resonant of, of leather, you know, who's, who's tasted, who among us has tasted leather? Um, I've not, maybe it's delicious, you know, I, I take it all back. Um, but no, I, I think it's, it's using language that is much more accessible, that kind of feels less, um, less studied, that feels more natural, more conversational. This is something that I see happening um, that I'm also pulling for. I, I'm excited about um, the, the younger generation's um, enthusiasm for wine. We've statistically really embraced it. Um, and I'd love to see it being open to evolution. You know, anyone who works in any industry, particularly those of us in digital media, know you, you have to be flexible. You have to move with the, you know, move with the times. Um, otherwise, you, you risk stagnation. Yeah, no, I, I find sometimes, uh, I mean, I've been around it enough that I don't find it terribly intimidating, but I know even for me who has some familiarization with it, when I see a, a tasting note on a menu saying it has floral qualities and you can taste pomegranate and pears in it, and then I drink the wine and I'm like, I'm, I'm, try, I'm, try, I'm striving to taste those things and I'm not finding them, but it's okay, it tastes good, is trying, right. to, <laughs> trying to do that. And, and I also say, I would say, I'm an advocate for, and I see this very infrequently. Um, I was at a restaurant recently, and they specialized. It was a Scottish-Italian restaurant, so the food is sort of more locally Scottish in Italian style, and then they have all Italian wines, since, of course, there's not a big wine industry in Scotland. But they had a really nice, concise, and especially, you know, Italian wines take an even greater level of depth of expertise and focus than than others, I think. But they had really nice, concise tasting notes that were, I, I, to your description, they were democratic. They were clear. And that's so helpful when you get a giant wine list menu. And it, 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 if how would you know? I mean, even people who know a lot about wine often say, I can't tell one from the other. Do you, do you think that, are you seeing more of that in the marketplace? I am. I am. And, you know, it's it's a really great opportunity um, to, for beverage professionals to bring a lot of consumers into 
into wine, into their personal wine list. You know, if you think about it, it's it's kind of antithetical to the hospitality industry to be alienating people. <laughs> um, we right, we we want to bring them in. We want them to to enjoy themselves. Um, again, discovery sounds like marketing speak, but I I actually believe in it in terms of um, going to bars and restaurants. You you often want the chance to either discover something new or discover why you like something. Um, there's there's nothing more exciting than that, I think. And it's true, I, I go to some restaurants and I am not an expert in the Greek language or Greek wines and I, I can get a bit intimidated by it. I'm, I, I butcher it when I'm trying to say it. And so it's really great when you work with wine professionals who are super excited to share their favorite Greek varieties with you. Here's what this one compares to. And uh, again, you kind of just have to read the room, right? There are times when you, you're in a group of people and you're like, if I say that this has notes of cassis, everyone will know what I'm talking about. But on the flip side, I mean, if I polled 10 random people on the street in Brooklyn, I, I don't know that eight of them will identify cassis and have tasted it you know it's a, it's a word we use all the time and like who has it um or who just has it at, at you know top of mind um and so i see this happening and again I, i'm rooting for it all right well let's switch gears get get more what i think is democratic although fast maybe catching up with wine in terms of its idiosyncrasies and insiderness let's talk about beer great yes i think the if i were to sum up craft beer and the beer industry at large in, in 2018, I would say craft lager. Um, this is something that I too am very, very into. Um, so lagers are a really popular beer style. Budweiser is a lager. Um, Stella Artois is a lager. Corona is a Mexican lager. Um, those are what um, folks in the industry call a macro lager. And that just means it's the the scale of it and the the corporate ownerships of it. Um, in in 2018, several craft brewers launched their own takes, their craft lagers. And um, while while some have existed for years prior, Jack's Abbey is a brewery in Massachusetts that is extraordinary and makes wonderful craft lagers and has been doing it for years. Um, last year. Other brewers, uh, Firestone Walker founders, launched craft lagers that were actually very much poised to compete with the macro lagers. And what I mean by that is um, they're available nationwide. They're they're priced competitively. A, a six pack of Firestone Lager is, I think, nine ninety nine in New York. That's that's quite comparable to a Corona six pack um, that you know I get at my corner bodega. This is very, very exciting to me because it it opens craft up to folks who maybe are lifelong Budweiser drinkers and are curious. They've, you know, they've heard about craft beer. Um, <laughs> I feel like I hear about it all day every day. But you know, you it's it's a great opportunity to to get a taste of something um, in a really accessible way. What I'd almost compare it to um, if you buy ricotta at the grocery store because you're, you're cooking something with ricotta and you, you take like a little spoonful, I am revealing a lot about my personal kitchen habits. Um, but you know, <laughs> let's, say you, let's say you take a little spoonful of ricotta while you're cooking because you deserve it. Um, and what it will taste like is it's, it's pretty... 
it's pretty neutral. Um, it might be a bit salty, but it kind of just tastes like neutral cheese. Um, and if you go to the farmer's market and you buy ricotta, it will, first of all, you'll spend double for like a quarter as much, right? But if you taste it straight, it, it tastes really cool. It's tangy and it has almost like a buttermilky quality. Um, that's to me the difference between uh, macro and craft lager. Both are pleasing. You know, if, if you like your, your Stella, do not let me tell you not to drink it. You know, you keep drinking it. Um, but if you are curious as to what craft beer, um, what it is and what it represents and, and all that, um, a craft lager is a great way to try it out because it's, it's a similar accessible effervescent flavor, um, but it, it has a bit more character. And one of the reasons you're also making that distinction, unless I'm totally ill-informed, but you'll, you'll correct me, is that the craft movement had a lot of initial focus on things like IPA, right? And lager was considered too mainstream. Is that why you're making that distinction as well? Yes, IPAs have been, I don't know, the <laughs> the main mission of um, craft breweries. Um, not all, but, but many. You know, I think if... If you talk to a lot of people who are in the industry, they almost it's almost gotten to an eye roll place where you're like, oh, there's five IPAs on tap at this brewery that has eight tabs, you know, and it's um it's there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, I like a lot of IPAs. Um, it's it's a category that contains multitudes. There's a lot of different styles within it, um, and it's evolved quite a bit over the past. I'm going to say a decade, even 15 years, um, the IPA category has. But but yes, it's it's so big. Um, it's it's so big within this very small corner of the world, right? Um, those of us who are into craft beer are so tired of IPAs that many many people across the country and world have have never heard of. So it's I'm I'm aware of take it all with a grain of salt, right? Um, but IPAs have become so big that you know instead of just having a an IPA, you have like a yuzu spiked IPA and <laughs> there's all of these adjunct ingredients that are exciting but it can start to feel superfluous and and many brewers who um who make very um big flavorful styles will say oh after a brew day I just want something crisp and refreshing um so you you want something like a, a craft lager or a beautifully made pilsner it's it's not that it's mindless but it's it's a bit more accessible Okay, so that's beer. Let's uh, 2018 in spirits and cocktails. I'm bunching those together since sure. they're usually in the same vein. Sure. Um, the spritz. The spritz is it's everywhere. It's inescapable. Um, <laughs> I love spritzes. <laughs> they are very popular. Um, the spritz is it's a really old style of drink. Um, it's it's something that dates back to when there were. Austrians in what is now northeastern Italy who felt like Italian wines were so potent that they wanted to spritz them a little, give them a bit of sparkling water to, to lengthen them and have them be easier drinking. Um, this became very popular, and, and it still is. You know, If you go to, to Padua or Venice in, um, like at happy hour time, you'll see just everyone's on the patio holding like an orange beverage in a wine glass, and that's usually an Aperol spritz. Um, and so that's just Aperol topped with usually sparkling wine, um, Prosecco, typically in northern Italy, um, or sparkling water. Um, and it's it's very delicious. It's really feels like summertime. You know, mm. <laughs> um, you know it's, it's breezy and fun. Um, and it's become enormously popular here in the U.S. Um, very recently, 
in part because it's a photogenic drink. I hate to say it, but people love something they can Instagram. Um, and also just a marketing push. Um, Aperol, the, the parent company of Aperol is Grupo Campari. It's the same company that owns Campari, um, which is in Negroni's, another um, northern Italian beverage that's become hugely popular in, in the cocktail world in the U.S. in the past decade. Um, Grupo Campari has has invested. They've invested in um, marketing endeavors in the U.S. And you know this isn't this is behind the curtain, but it's also not. You know there are reasons why certain foods become more popular at certain times. And um, so I think the spritz is a it's a perfect storm. It's it is light. It is very again it's it's kind of it's easy to love. Um, it's like the pizza of drinks. Uh, it's very very easy to like. You can customize it to your tastes um, and it also looks great in a photograph it's a really great color it's easy to make it as two ingredients um, and Aperol's just become a lot more a lot easier to get your hands on so I'm surprised I didn't realize that I always thought that Aperol must be a competitor of Campari's so they're part of the same family did is there do they have them positioned in a way as like one more grown up or one less I know Campari is much more bitter than Aperol, which is sweet. So, how have have you heard it explained how they sort of coexist with, rather than be head to head? Yeah, I think it. I think it is exactly what you said. It's it's the flavor profile. Um, Aperol. If you taste them both both straight, like Aperol is a bit sweeter and Campari is a is more bitter. They also are both connected to um, historic cocktails, which I think helps. Um, in a lot of ways, when you're, if I were marketing spirits, I think the smartest thing you can do is, is attach yourself to a cocktail. That's kind of what Campari did with Campari, um, was really embrace the Negroni. Um, and I think that's, it's a good move. Um, I actually often wonder if like the brandy industry should get in on this. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> a lot of classic American cocktails, um, that, that can be made with brandy. I love sidecars. I, no one drinks sidecars. <laughs> there's a lot, you know, and, but mm. 15 years ago, I think if I said the word Negroni, it would be like saying Cassis. It's not something that we were as as wildly, <laughs> as wild about, I guess I should say. Um, and and so I think in, in that way, there's, there's roads to differentiate. All right. Well, we're almost out of time for 2018, but I just wanted to get your thoughts if there was anything sort of significant in terms of drinking venues. And by that, I mean like bars or restaurants and how they serve or present um, anything, wine, beer, or cocktails. What, did you have any kind of quick flashes of, of, of anything there, or was it really all about the beverages? Um, there is something that, that also is like a blur into 2019. Um, I, I see neon everywhere. Um, not the color palette, like the, <laughs> the light. Um, neon lights are, are so popular in bar design. Um, for many of the same reasons I just said with uh, Aperol Spritz, um, they they photograph really well. They look really cool. Um, I work really close to Chacha Matcha, which is like a matcha cafe in Manhattan. And um, it's funny. I see people just go in and photograph like the neon sign that's like have a matcha day or something like that. And um, it doesn't say it's something more clever than have a matcha day, but it's something like that. And I, I see folks just go in, take a picture and leave. You know, I think neon in design is really, really popular. It's it's both retro and au courant. All right. There you have it. 2018 in wine, beer, spirits and cocktails and drinking venues. Um 
from Emily at Vine Pair. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk more to Emily, and she's going to give us her look into 2019 and also tell us what's upcoming from Vine Pair specifically. All right, what was your favorite drink or drinks trend in 2018? What can you not wait to try or have more of in 2019? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliechildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Emily Saladino, Editor-in-Chief of Vine Pair. We've just covered the year that was in drinks, and now we're going to talk about what there is to look forward to. All right, let's break it down again. We're going to go category by category. So Emily, tell me, what do you see in your crystal ball for drinks trends in 2019? We can start with wine again. I see hybridization. Um, I see because consumers do drink across categories because it's it's rare to en- encounter someone who drinks wine and never touches beer or cocktails anymore. Um, companies are are getting hit to this, <laughs> and um, already you've I've seen a lot of winemakers releasing these bourbon barrel aged wines. Um, they're they're really popular amongst twenty something men and women um, in the U.S. and so. Instead of letting your wine sit in a French oak cask or American oak cask, as, as is traditional, um, winemakers are aging them in bourbon barrels, barrels that previously were used for bourbon. And, and the idea is that it would infuse your favorite wines with the, the sort of honeyed notes of bourbon. Um, full disclosure, I, I don't love this. I, I think it's weird. I don't actually know that it makes a lot of sense. But that's not the point. The point is that people love it. Um, and that is huge that presents a huge like opportunity to me that's a it's an enormous segment of the market that maybe didn't feel spoken to by um by a lot of wines but they know that they like whiskey um and and maybe they kind of you know we all self-identify in in a bar and so maybe you just you think of yourself as a whiskey drinker um and this gives you an opportunity to try a red wine um it's interesting because in the same way that I don't love them, a lot of wine professionals don't really love this category, this hybridization, but it's it's inescapable. Um, and it's it's also popular, and we are in the business of hospitality, and you, you got to get the people what they want, right? Um, and so to me, I, I look at it as a cool opportunity to reach a lot of folks who, who maybe don't fancy themselves wine drinkers, 
but could. Um, and so if, you know, if you met someone who wanted to drink a bourbon barrel aged wine and they enjoy it, and then you could say like, okay, did you like about that, that it had this very fruit forward quality? Like you got a lot of bright fruits at the beginning. And they're like, yeah, you know, then you can introduce them to other wines. Um, that's, that's again, that's just potential. Have you heard a lot of pushback from traditional winemakers? Obviously the whole winemaking process is very much ground rooted in this very French um, and European, I guess, wide, wider tradition, and part of winemaking right is tradition. Are they really opposed to this, or does it really depend? I think most folks in the wine industry are pretty opposed to it. Um, it depends. There are there are others who are happy to embrace it, and as I said, you know, just give the people what they want. Um, it depends, but I think most most folks in the industry are are not into it. Yeah, it's a tricky line because obviously it's fantastic to bring people who didn't think they liked wine or didn't think they wanted to try it or thought it was for older people. That's really great to find ways to introduce it and to expand that level of interest or experimentation. But then that is difficult when it when it butts up against something that is so tradition based. Yeah, you know, it it reminds me a couple of years ago, um, there was Again, this is something that was extremely controversial in like my corner of the world. <laughs> um, there were a lot of people who were angsty about the notion that you should hide vegetables in your children's food. Like you should make mac and cheese, except like half of the cheddar is shredded carrots. Um, and it, it, there's like a very divergent, <laughs> there's two very strongly opposed um, views there. And there are people who are just like, I just want to get kids to drink vegetable to eat vegetables, and then there are people who are like, I don't think you should be hiding nutrition from children. Um, and they're both wrong and they're both right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of see that here, right? Like, there's there's good reasons to not be into this, but there's also great reasons to to explore it, to find ways to make it work for you. And so, are we going to see controversial things like that in in beer this year, or is beer going to be um, a, a more fun and fancy free? I think hybridization will play out in beer too, but I guess in more in um, in the way it's perceived. Uh, there's there's now a Michelin starred brew pub in Chicago. Um, I think beer is is entering the how will I say this I think it's entering the fine dining space more um I think it's it's really hard for sommeliers to ignore it um because it is huge it's growing um it's it's got a lot of fans who are really into cuisine across the board right so you're not just someone who spends your your hard-earned money on great beer if you do that, you probably also want to eat well. Um, and and I, I see that happening in restaurants where places that are that sort of self-identify as a wine bar, um, you can't really get away with just having, you know, one cursory beer. Um, and, and the flip side is true, too, right? Like if you have a cocktail bar, you probably have even if you have very few wines by the glass or beers on offer, they're thoughtful. Like you've, you've put a lot of effort into them. Um, as I said, when I first moved to New York, I, I bartended for years. And I remember I worked at a Belgian beer garden um, in Manhattan and it had these fantastic Belgian beers. And then we had six like truly terrible wines. And it definitely was because we didn't think anyone was coming to drink wine. You know, if the people who were coming to drink, who were coming, wanted the beer and then like maybe their friend who wasn't that into Belgian beers would be like, I guess I'll just have that Cote de Rhone, you know, and it, it, I don't think you can get away with that anymore. Um, Mm. you know, I, I think if you offer, um, 
six wines, you, you put some thought into them um, and, and vice versa. I think as, as beer becomes more and more, um, it becomes perceived more and more akin to wine as this beverage that's it's ancient and worth our respect, um, I, I think it's going to be hard to, to keep it out of out of off of white tablecloths right like out of fancy wine lists um i think sommeliers will become more of beverage directors taking on all types of drinks um as opposed to just sticking to wine well you would also be pleased to to know that at the julia child foundation we have um noticed that trend and in fact at the julia child award um gala dinner there is both the option for the guests of wine pairings and beer pairings, all with notes and sort of balancedly balanced out between the two. And I think the hard thing is you're not really supposed to do both. And it doesn't really work for your palate to do both, but I'm always just in, in a total quandary which to do each year because I feel like I'm missing out one way or the other. But um, it's it's definitely exciting to have and I think fits into the, the um, mindset that you're talking about. Yeah, I love that. All right. So tell us, um, that's beer. What about spirits and cocktails? Um, I think this is, it's spirits, cocktails, and it's it's also bars. I see embracing um, the, it's it's the new age of the mocktail in, in 2019. Mm. Um, <laughs> mocktail is, is something that for me has, has really, trashy kind of dorky connotations there were these mocktails that were kind of like fruit punch with a cherry garnish and maybe like a flaming orange peel like it was just a a big sort of sugar bomb um and and now there's this new age of non-alcoholic drinks um which i am so 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 into it's really exciting to see um a lot of the most progressive um you know boundary pushing cocktail bars that are opening um, right now have dedicated what we often call no proof cocktail lists. Um, Mm. And so no proof just means, you know, a a proof is the way of measuring the alcoholic content. So zero proof or no proof means there's not, there's no alcohol, but these are really thoughtful, cool cocktails. Nonetheless, Um, they have the same amount of, of care and energy put into them as every other cocktail on the list. Um, And I love this trend. Um, You know, there's, there's plenty of folks who don't drink. There's also plenty of folks who maybe just don't want to drink right now um you know you're you're ill you're pregnant um you're just taking a day off and i i love that now you can you can go to a bar and and be just as included um inclusivity again it's it's paramount in in hospitality right like we we want people to feel welcome i want people to be able to hang out at the bar with me even if they're they're choosing not to drink right now or even just if you know you've had a stiff cocktail and you still want to hang you know that way you don't have to go home you can have another drink um i love i love the way that it it does become really open and it it allows bars to be just these like great centers of hospitality as opposed to a place where you go and you've got one purpose and it's to get drunk you know um there are there are those nights i'm not saying that you know you, again you do you listener um but i i also think that it's cool for people to be included regardless of where they're at yeah i was thinking it sounds very inclusive i was curious do you think that trend has it been driven by consumer demand and more and more people asking for them or was it sort of an identified sort of missing gap that that the venues thought that might drive more business 
It's a good question. Um, I wonder if you, you know, if, if you're asked enough behind the bar, can you make me something non-alcoholic if you just start focusing on it? There's other, there's other things playing into this too. You know, there's, there's a lot of focus on health and wellness just in the bar and outside of it. Um, you know, in, in culture right now, there's been a lot of products that are, are geared toward wellness. Um, you know, people who previously hadn't, never heard of yoga are really into yoga there's just there's a lot of um, emphasis on how self-care I guess is the, the right buzzword to use um, and so I think some of it stems from that um, two years ago someone who I know who who works in Silicon Valley talked about how folks didn't go to cocktail bars to network um, if you had like a, a business associate in town you went to an elixir bar where you drank like you know these things that were supposed to be basically like a smoothie bar <laughs> um, things that were infused with health related powders um and so I, I just I think there's been movements toward health and wellness um that have seeped into cocktail bars there's also products like Seedlip which is the the world's first non-alcoholic spirit launched about two years ago um and it's cool it's a spirit it kind of reminds me of of gin um and it's it's clear and you can mix it into you can just serve it with tonic water like you would a gin and tonic or you can mix it into cocktails so there's there's been a couple of different um sort of a couple of different things leading us to this place and to your point I mean I do think that if enough people are asking for a non-alcoholic cocktail in a bar at a certain point you know you're running a business you want to be able to sell someone a drink um at a certain point you're going to start speaking to that audience and I've been hearing a lot about the sort of change in the mixer movement and, and brands like Fever Tree, which have really tried to say, if you're drinking great alcohol, why would you mix it with crappy, you know, sweetened um, uh, corn syrup? What what are you guys seeing at Vine Pair in terms of, you know, just the mixer side of cocktails? We have absolutely been seeing that, too. Um, there's There's a... There's a good reason for it in the same way that if you spent, a bu- you know, that ricotta like analogy I was <laughs> dragging mm-hmm. on prior, you know, if you spend a bunch of money on this fancy ricotta, you probably aren't going to smear it on your supermarket sliced bread that, you know, you, you probably want to put it on a, a really nice cracker or you're going to use it in something so that it shines. And I think that's that's the it's a, a parallel there as well. Um, if you spent money on a, a good quality spirit, um, you are probably going to mask it if you cover it in a very sugary, sweet packaged uh, mixer. And even mixers that are that are alcoholic, you know, things like vermouth. Um, there's a lot of of momentum happening in the. Um, craft mixers and craft vermouth categories um and it just makes sense right like as i said you don't want to you don't spend money on something and then have it kind of blown out by um by its its accompaniments and are there any mixer brands um that stand out or do you guys lean toward kind of more niche things that are really local or or is that not something you guys have yet delved into in terms of taste testing or recommendations we have. We've taste tested. Actually, we, we run a weekly series called Buy This Booze, and um, a lot of what we'll do is we'll, almost like a test kitchen, um, create a lineup of cocktails with um, you know one control. So let's say we're testing the best tonic water for gin and tonic. Um, we'll, 
will have the same gin and someone will create, let's say, 10 cocktails um, with different tonics. And we'll, we'll gather the staff and then usually some, some beverage industry professionals, bartenders or whomever, um, to come in and we'll taste them all blind. And it's, it's pretty revelatory because a lot of times the ones that I think I love, <laughs> the ones that like I buy in the grocery store, um, are not the ones that I choose blind. And <laughs> so um, within that, you know, I do think Fever Tree is a great example, as you said. Q drinks, like the, the letter Q. Mm. Um, those are pretty widely available now um, as well, and and those are some really good mixers. Um, and so I think you can you like be open to it. You can you can taste test them. Um, sometimes you know there's I think it was I think it was gin and tonics where it was like Seagram's tonic water was the one that we liked the most. So like sometimes it'll surprise you. Um, you know you you never know. Um, and so I I do see though in within that within the the cocktail space, um, thinking outside of just the one spirits bottle into everything that goes into your drink because like cooking you know if you have good ingredients the end product will be better all right and was there anything we kind of covered drinking venues a bit when we talked about the mocktail and stuff was there anything that you wanted to to add to that before we move on no, I feel like we've covered it, especially in the in the mocktails and also in the ways that you'll be able to get a good beer, glass of wine, or cocktail in, in most places, I'd like to think, in 2019. All right. So VinePair, you guys also have your own podcast. So what would listeners find if they check that out? Um, we do. It runs every Monday. Um, we, we cover issues within... Um, within beer, wine, and spirits as well. Um, we have both staffers and then folks in the industry come on to discuss issues. Like last week's was, um, is it possible to make a living in the restaurant business? A mm. very pertinent question to many of us. Um, mm. And so it's it's things like that. It's things that are covered on the site, but also things um, subjects that are independent um, to the podcast relating to um, the culture of drinks. And so is it, is the audience focused really connoisseurs or it is kind of broad-based like you were doing this sort of international comparison for drinks? It's pretty broad-based. I think it's it's pertinent to people in, in trade, um, but it's it's pretty broad. I I went on our, our podcast once to talk about Thanksgiving planning. Um, you know, that's, that's something that's <laughs> common to all Americans, um, whether you're hosting or just attending. Um, and so it's, it's pretty open um, in terms of the audience. Makes sense. Generally, food and drink go hand in hand. And uh, I think I'm all for, and I think at the foundation, we're all for more considered pairings between food and drink at, at all times. Yes, absolutely. All right. So what we're in January and everyone's thought about their New Year's resolutions, even those who think they're ridiculous. Um, I don't. I think they're good. Um, what are Vine Pairs New Year's resolutions? Well, we are launching a redesign of the site, so we have resolved to be more beautiful. Um, we are <laughs> launching a redesign um, next month, and I think what's significant about it is it will make prominent our wine reviews, which is, as you pointed out earlier, um, it's not a huge focus um, on the site right now, but we do have um, tasting editors who um, taste wines for us, and rate them um, and rank them, and it's it's a it's a different system than a lot of the um, the vanguards. Again, not naming names um, within <laughs> the wine press. It's it's a different system in that we um, 
we don't taste blind. Um, and what that means is that instead of, like I was saying with the blind taste tests of the cocktails, we do consider both the price and the availability when rating wines for our readers. And the reason why is because I don't know a lot of people who don't consider price when they're buying wine. Um, if I spend $100 on a bottle um, at retail, for me, that's like a significant chunk of change. And um, I, I want to if you're spending $100, you just have a different value proposition than if you're spending $20. Um, mm. And so that is something that we we believe pretty strongly. Um, and, and those will be, they are currently published. They're just not prominent on the site. They're not like on the dark web. We like rate wines or anything. But like we do have them available. But on the redesign, they'll be a lot more public. Um, and that's, that's a big thing for us is um, it's just, it's a point of view that we are excited about. All right. So that that's yeah. Well, and how great that actually a digital magazine has much more um, capacity to make oneself more beautiful than maybe one would do in real life or, or in, in physical <laughs> things. So that, that sounds like a much more achievable um, New Year's resolution than it might be for many. <laughs> Yes, no, absolutely. Um, and we do have we have one other actually, if I if I can um, yeah, share yeah. with you, we we also um, are debuting a, a print magazine this year, which is really exciting and kind of hilarious, right? Like so many print publications have have pivoted to digital, and um, we are not pivoting away from digital. <laughs> um, pivot is a word that we use in, in media all the time that I find really hilarious. It's like circle back for publications. Um, <laughs> and um, we are we're not we're not leaving uh, the digital space. We will always be digital first publication. Um, but we are launching this print um, issue. It will come out twice this year. And it's it's our our best long form. It's new stories um, to the magazine, um, and I'm excited about it because it's. First of all, I came from books. I, I actually love the the fact of like holding something tangible in your hands. I own a Kindle, but I like resent it. Um, and so I I love the the physical material um, of it and. It also, though, in, in a less um, you know less specific to me thing, um, I I love that it will reach folks who who may or may not be on the site every day. Um, we're in talks with a couple of really cool hotels for them to stock it and, and bookshops and um, things like that. And so it's a cool way of, of folks who might read about fashion and tech and food and who don't necessarily um, read the site every day to to get a taste of it. Yeah, that you partially answered my next question. So, like, wh where and how will people find that? Will it be like for a download on the site, or do you have to subscribe, or you'll have to find a retailer who has it? You'll be able to purchase it um, uh, on the site. We we actually have an e-commerce arm um, right now where we sell um, like really cool products connected to drinking. So, like, I own a wine decanter because we sell it on vinepair.com, and I think it's cool. Um, I never owned one before, full disclosure. Um, and so we we sell products on the site, and the the print publication will be available there. Um, and it it also will be in in select retailers. Well, that's all exciting stuff to look forward to. All right. After the break, Emily's going to share a Julia moment. Stay, stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher 
or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Emily, your turn. What's your Julia moment? My Julia moment is, in a way, not my moment. Um, My Julia moment occurred when I worked in book publishing. I worked as an assistant to a literary agent who specialized in cookbooks. And one of her clients was this extraordinarily talented food historian named Jessica B. Harris. And Dr. Harris had written this story that I was reading one day at my desk about going to have lunch um, at Julia Child's house. And she, the story takes off from here. This is a very small detail of it. She, Dr. Harris talked about um, while Julia was in the kitchen, she left a bowl of Pepperidge Farm goldfish crackers on the table as like a, you know, aperitif snack. And um, this was like a lightning bolt moment for me, not just because I love goldfish crackers. Like I don't love the Annie's organic take. I want like the MSG. Uh, and so I, <laughs> I loved that not only do Julian Ch- Child and I did we share an esteem for this, but also I loved um, I loved the high low of it. I, you know, I loved that someone who is is so devoted to um, demystifying French technique for everyone also has a taste for a snack that I buy at, at CVS. Like I, I absolutely love that because it, it, it sort of codified my own culinary viewpoint where you, you can love the high and you can love the low and, and they can peacefully coexist. Well, and yes, that is definitely true. Julia loved her goldfish crackers and we, we do actually enjoy them often with champagne at uh, celebratory moments that relate to her and her honor. And I am, for one, fascinated of how how does Pepperidge Farm make their stuff taste, you know, they're sort of the high of the low mainstream end, right? How do they make it taste so much better? What's in it? I, you know, I wish I knew, right? Uh, <laughs> I do wonder if it's the MSG. Like, I, I actually don't, you know, it's like a different salty taste. I don't know the answer. If if I knew, I, I you know, I would also, um, I would share it with you, but I also feel like I would be putting it in everything. <laughs> all right well we heard it first and you um maybe maybe we'll see in vine pair an upcoming story on what you pair what pairs best with goldfish crackers <laughs> i love it all right emily thanks for joining us thank you so much for having me and thanks to our loyal listeners for returning for season four and a big welcome to any new listeners there's a lot in store this season so make sure you subscribe to the podcast and if you're enjoying it do follow the foundation on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. For the latest insight, trends, and recommendations on all things drinks, go to vinepair.com. It's V-I-N-E-P-A-I-R. And follow them on social at Vinepair on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also follow what Emily herself is up to. Her handle is at Emily Saladino. It's Emily, E-M-I-L-Y. And Saladino is S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O. 
on Twitter and just add a J. It's at Emily J. Saladino on Instagram. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lawrence Alkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It'll help new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Joy's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.